Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to a special post-British election edition of the Quillette podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. On Thursday, as many of you know, Boris Johnson and his Conservatives were re-elected and now have the biggest majority at Westminster since Margaret Thatcher won in 1987. Johnson now has a free hand to, as his campaign slogan had it, get Brexit done. Meanwhile, the Labour side is licking its wounds after being led to a historic defeat under doctrinaire leftist Jeremy Corbyn. When I went looking for a British expert to help me make sense of this result, I didn't have to go far, as my London-based Quillette colleague Toby Young is not only an expert on British politics, he is also, full disclosure, a friend and former journalistic colleague of Boris Johnson himself. On Friday, I spoke to Toby by Skype. Here are excerpts from our interview. So, did the result of the election surprise you? It surprised me a little bit. I was quite nervous at about 5 to 10. The BBC and the other broadcasters produce an exit poll at 10pm, which is usually pretty accurate. But in the run-up to that exit poll result being broadcast, I was so nervous I could barely breathe. Most people were predicting a majority between 30 and 40. Some people thought it would be a little lower than that. I had some friends who worked at Conservative Party headquarters and they were feeling quite jittery. So I really wasn't expecting a majority of 78. That was a surprise. Now, when you say you were nervous, just to be candid with our listeners, you mean nervous as a Conservative supporter? Nervous for a number of reasons. Yes, nervous as an outspoken supporter of the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson's. Recently, when I've been in public participating in debates, I've been attacked in quite an unpleasant, vituperative, personal way. Yesterday, as I was coming home on the London Underground, I was verbally assaulted by someone who recognised me and said that I was a despicable person because I was supporting the Conservatives. So sort of nervous from a personal point of view about uh, life becoming a little bit more unpleasant and speaking and appearing in public becoming more difficult if Corbyn and his outriders uh, felt empowered by a victory, but also nervous that this is the most, was the most left-wing Labour manifesto in, I think, the party's history. They were proposing to spend £1.2 trillion on nationalising gas, energy, the railways. Corbyn himself has sided with Britain's enemies in almost every conflict Britain has been involved in since Suez, every international conflict. He was in favour of unilateral nuclear disarmament. He's talked about disarming the police. He sided with the IRA, with various other terrorist organisations like Hamas and Hezbollah, who he's described as his friends. He's been a paid employee of Iranian state television. He's presided over a crisis in his own party, whereby it's discovered it's riddled with anti-Semites. Okay, Uh, wait, Toby... Yeah, I'm going to cut you off there because, you know, election's over. Uh, But I share some of your feelings about Corbyn. I should also say, by the way, you were nervous about being called despicable that, I mean, for guys like you and me, that's 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 a normal weekday. 
economy, right? So you don't need an election for that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Before we can get into what Britain can expect under Boris Johnson's majority government, do you think there is a moment of soul searching among labor supporters for having elected a leader who is such an old school almost like a, a stereotype of a 1970s or a 1980s leftist. When you look at social media today, do you see people having buyer's remorse for having put Corbyn in that position? The most generous explanation for Labour's defeat, and Labour suffered its worst defeat yesterday since 1935, went down to 203 seats, uh, which is worse than Labour did in 1983, when it won just 211 seats, I think. And the most generous explanation that Corbyn's apologists have come up with is that it was just to do with Brexit. Brexit is an anomaly. Boris had been proposing to get Brexit done. His campaign slogan was get Brexit done. And Corbyn had this kind of hard to decipher ambivalent policy position on Brexit. So his supporters are saying, you know, if it wasn't for Brexit, we would have won a resounding victory. A slightly less generous excuse is that Corbyn himself was a bit of a weirdo. He's 70 years old. He's a vegetarian. He has this passionate interest in manholes. Um, he is a kind of typical, as you say, 70s protester type. But actually, I think in truth, neither of those things really go to the heart of why Labour did so badly and the Conservatives did so well, which is the collapse of Labour's working class base. And this isn't just something that's happened in the United Kingdom. It's also one of the reasons that the Liberals managed to do so well. Scott Morrison in the recent Australian elections. They won Labour heartland areas like Queensland. Similarly, yesterday, the Conservatives won Northern and, and Midlands constituencies, which have been in Labour's hands for 75 years. But that's been a gradual process that's been happening since the Second World War, not just in the UK, but across the Anglosphere, also in France and in the United States. Thomas Piketty's new book is in large part about this very phenomenon, the desertion of left of centre parties by white working class people without much education. Here in Canada, when you have populist politicians, they very much reject the Trump comparison. And I know that there's a lot of Boris Johnson supporters in UK who bristled at the idea that Boris Johnson was the British analogy to Donald Trump. And yet what you're describing does sound somewhat Trump-like in terms of the migration of working class voters to a conservative candidate. Well, people, as you say, are quite resistant. Certainly people who support the Conservatives and who are fans of Boris's are quite resistant to that comparison, not least because Boris is liberal on all the big cultural issues, abortion and immigration. But I think it's impossible to deny that the same long-term demographic trends which helped Donald Trump win the presidency in 2016 have helped Boris in his victory yesterday. The phenomenon that Piketty describes is a kind of realignment whereby 75 years ago in Britain, France and America, those are the three he focuses on, 75 years ago, low income, low education voters skewed left of centre and high income, high education voters skewed right of centre. And now that's just been completely reversed. And one of the reasons it's been reversed is because of mass immigration, globalisation, eroding the industrial belt, creating a kind of post-industrial wasteland. But it's also because left of centre parties like the Labour Party, like the Democrats, have been captured by identitarian leftists who pander to their educated, liberal, middle class supporters, but generally neglect their working class supporters. As I understand, the pattern in UK is similar to that in the United States and Canada, where people who are knowledge workers in densely populated urban areas 
they by and large vote in a in a monolithic way for for left of center parties has there been a concern about partisanship expressing itself geographically i imagine that there are people in london some of whom don't know anyone who voted conservative is that the case yeah that's very much the case so urban densely populated areas like London, Labour still does very well. And it did pretty well in London last night, perhaps not quite as well as it was hoping to, but nonetheless, pretty well, just as Hillary Clinton did very well in 2016 in densely populated urban areas with high concentrations of graduates. That seems to be the demographic that left of centre parties now appeal to, but at the expense of rural areas, towns, some of the other nations in the United Kingdom, Labour saw a complete wipeout uh, in Scotland, in Wales, the Conservatives did unexpectedly well. And so you can see a similar pattern, I think, in Australia and in America with the erosion of left of centre parties, working class voter base outside densely populated urban areas. Well, it wasn't just Labour that got a wake up call in this election. It was also the Liberal Democrats. Tell me a little bit about how their third party role played into the dynamic of this election. I know that they had a hyper-liberal social posture on many issues. Did they split the vote on the left side of the spectrum? They split the vote by less than anticipated. One of the reasons Boris was in a stronger position strategically than Corbyn is because those who want to leave the European Union and who voted leave in the 2016 referendum are more united behind Boris than those who want to remain are behind Corbyn. The Remainers are generally split between the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and the Green Party. And I think the Conservatives were relying on that going into this election. But during the election campaign, you saw support for the Liberal Democrats beginning to decline and support for Labour beginning to tick up as Remainers began to unite around the Labour Party. They didn't do it to enough of an extent to win, but it certainly happened to a greater extent than people were anticipating. And one of the reasons for that is partly because we have a first-past-the-post electoral system, which tends to favour large parties and penalise smaller parties. So there tends to be a drift towards the two major parties and a squeezing of the smaller parties during general election campaigns. It happened in 2017. It happened this time. But also, I think the Liberal Democrats' leader, Joe Swinson, was not a very effective leader. The polling suggested that whenever she appeared in public, support for the Liberal Democrats declined. She took some quite extreme policy positions. She gambled a little bit. She became very much, very much a compliant with trans orthodoxies. I don't think that was a vote winner for her. But also, and most significantly, her policy on Brexit was simply to revoke Article 50. So Article 50 was what was invoked a couple of years ago by Theresa May when she was the prime minister and began the process of our departure from the European Union. Instead of holding a second referendum, which was the Labour Party policy, in the hope that the British people would change their mind about leaving the European Union, she just wanted to revoke Article 50 and pretend the first referendum result had never happened. And that, I think, put off even a lot of Remainers who thought that was a little bit too extreme to ignore the votes of more than 70 million people and just pretend it had never happened. I think that was a little bit too much, even for the most hardcore Remainers. And we saw last night, one of the more dramatic moments was when Jo Swinson actually lost her seat. Uh, she had a seat in Scotland and she lost that to the Scottish Nationalist Party. We can't avoid talking about Brexit because obviously it's a huge issue. The New York Times had a big spread on election day on Thursday. And the way they cast the issue was that obviously the Leave side won the Brexit referendum, but that support for leaving has slightly waned in the interim. 
Yet at the same time, there is a feeling that, look, if we're going to leave, let's just do it and let's elect a government that has a clear plan for doing it. So you have this situation where maybe a majority of people, perhaps a slim majority now, if they had to do it all over again, they would vote to remain. But you can't roll back the clock. And so now there's this reluctant, joyless support for a party that at least has a plan to get Britain out of this mess. That's the narrative, at least, that has emerged in the North American media. Is that a narrative that that you believe is accurate? I don't think it's completely accurate. The question of how Britain would vote if there was another referendum is contentious. Uh, Yes, the polls indicate that there'd be slightly more support for remaining than leaving. The polls indicated pretty much the same thing on the eve of the 2016 referendum too. So it could be that support for leave ticks up during during the referendum campaign if there was to be a second referendum. But I, I certainly think that Brexit fatigue has been a factor in Boris's victory. And his slogan of get Brexit done, I think, didn't just appeal to people who had voted leave and felt frustrated that we haven't yet left after three years. It also appealed to people who were just bored to the back teeth with Brexit. It's dominated British politics. It's dominated the public conversation. It's dominated private conversations for three years. And I think people are just so bored with it now. They just want to get it done. And of course, one of the points that Boris's opponents made during this general election campaign is actually, if we do come out of the European Union with the withdrawal agreement that Boris has negotiated on January 31st or thereabouts, that won't be getting Brexit done. That'll just be phase one. Boris will then have to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union and then a number of other free trade agreements with the rest of the world. Um, And it's going to go on and on and continue to dominate politics. I think, for many years to come. But I think that the feeling, at least, that this would get us to the first stage, get us beyond the first base, I think that was a widespread feeling and helps account, I think, for Boris's victory. Putting aside politics for a moment, has Brexit, at least the opening stages of the Brexit procedures, has Brexit affected your life in any way in terms of your travel or what goods you can buy, your interactions with continental Europe? I wouldn't say it's affected my day-to-day life in any quotidian, practical way. Travel to the rest of Europe uh, hasn't been affected. Uh, You don't now need a visa or, or anything like that to go to France. Uh, that may change after we've left. I think it's unlikely to change. But the, the people on the Remain side in the EU referendum claim that merely voting to leave, not actually leaving, but merely signalling that we wanted to leave would cause the British economy to crash. And uh, there would have to be an emergency budget. There would have to be tax cuts and so on and so forth. Well, none of that happened. Um, the British economy hasn't crashed, hasn't really been affected. If I mean, it may be that the British economy would be doing even better had we not voted to leave three years ago. But there haven't been any real visible negative signs of any impact of Brexit. On a personal level, it certainly affected my relationships with some people. People's position on Brexit has weirdly become more entrenched since the referendum. The people on the losing side haven't gone through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. They're still stuck at the kind of raging at the injustice of the results stage. And partly because there's always been this hope that's been kept alive for three years that there might be a second referendum in which the result turns out different. That has meant that people haven't accepted, the people on the losing side haven't accepted that their loss. So in many of my personal relationships, that's put a real strain. And in some cases, it's ended some of my personal relationships. But I hope that now, you know, now that it's clear, now that the British public have essentially voted for a second time uh, to leave, and we are now going to leave at the end of January, I hope that the people who wanted to remain can begin to reconcile themselves to that and that the country can begin to heal. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp. 
an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. There was an interesting subplot to all the talk about Brexit involving Ireland and interactions between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Could you describe how that played into the election and how it affected voters in Northern Ireland? Well, it certainly wasn't a big issue, uh, not least because Boris, rather uh, counter to expectations, managed to persuade the European Union into reopen the uh, negotiations around the withdrawal agreement. Had he been proposing to take us out of the European Union with no deal, which was at one stage uh, his position, then it would have been a real issue. And the reason it would have been an issue is because if we leave the European Union with no transition arrangements in place, the fear is that there would then have to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because the Republic of Ireland would be in the EU, Northern Ireland, part of the UK would be outside the EU, and there would have to be a hard border to prevent goods crossing, to prevent people crossing and so forth. And that hard border might reignite the conflict in Ireland. The fact that there is no hard border is one of the uh, key achievements of what's called the Good Friday Agreement, which has been responsible for the maintenance of peace in Ireland for several decades. But Boris managed to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. He's put in place a transitional arrangement whereby there isn't going to be a hard border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So that wasn't an issue in this general election campaign. You say that Labour took losses in Scotland. My understanding was that the Scots vote to the left on many issues, uh, particularly social issues. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong about that. Scotland for many years was a Labour stronghold, but Labour has been essentially replaced in Scotland by the Scottish National Party. And the SNP are a slightly hard thing to get your head around, which is they are a liberal ethno-nationalist party. So they skew very much to the left on economic issues, on social issues, and yet they are openly ethno-nationalist. And one of the great fears following yesterday's election results is that the Scottish nationalist movement could be reignited. There was a referendum in 2014 in which the Scottish people were given a choice between remaining in the United Kingdom or becoming an independent country. And they voted by a margin of about 55 to 45 percent to remain part of the union. Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP, wants another referendum. She thinks this time around she could win. And she's very pro-EU, very anti-conservative. And I think she thinks that Boris's victory and the SNP's victory in Scotland yesterday gives her a mandate for a second Scottish referendum. I think the difficulty she faces is that the case for Scottish independence was never that strong to begin with, but it collapses once the United Kingdom, with Scotland with it, comes out of the European Union. 
her argument or her predecessor's argument was that if Scotland leaves the United Kingdom, when the United Kingdom is still in the EU, that Scotland could inherit part of Britain's EU membership. So it wouldn't have to ask to become a member of the EU afresh. Now, that's unlikely, but it's actually impossible if the UK leaves the European Union. In that scenario, if Scotland became independent, it would have to ask to rejoin. And in the first place, it might be that might be vetoed by Spain because Spain doesn't want to encourage its own Catalan independence movement. But even if it wasn't vetoed, because the Scottish economy is in such a parlous state, and because without the English subsidy, the economy would be in deficit in Scotland, it would have to accept all kinds of austerity measures, which would be brutal for the Scottish people, which is, a very, is very dependent on welfare services uh, in education and health and so forth. I read somewhere that even in Wales, there are stirrings of separatist agitation. Is that true? Yes, there's also a liberal Welsh nationalist party, Plaid Cymru, uh, a Cymru, but they didn't do particularly well in this election. They did nothing like as well as the SNP. The Welsh nationalist movement has been sort of percolating away for many decades, but doesn't look as though it's going to burst into life anytime soon. One of the complaints made in Canada and United States and other OECD countries is that elections have been so hijacked by hot button issues that basic things like healthcare, education and such often don't get discussed. Is that your sense from this past election campaign in the UK? And if so, what issues really fell off the table? One of the complaints that many people have made about the six week general election campaign that's just taken place in the United Kingdom is that almost nothing was discussed at all seriously. The televised debates between the party leaders were generally of a very poor standard, quite personal and vituperative. Nothing was discussed in any real depth, including Brexit. The National Health Service was the second biggest issue in this election. In every election, the Labour Party try and portray the NHS as not being safe in the Conservatives' hands. And one of the smears that Jeremy Corbyn and other Labour Party campaigners made about Boris and the Conservatives during the campaign is that they wanted to sell the NHS to Donald Trump. I mean, that was the sort of level of the debate. The idea that that the President of the United States would somehow be interested in buying our National Health Service uh, to somehow profit him as though you could make any money from the National Health Service. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Actually, you know what? That doesn't surprise me. During the most heated moments of the free trade debate in Canada, this goes back decades, that was a common line that everything was going to be for sale and our hospitals and schools would all be sold to, I don't know, oil companies or, or some such. Yeah. I mean, when I first heard that line, I just thought it was so idiotic that the, the argument couldn't possibly land. But I think it did land during this campaign. And Trump was actually asked about it when he was here for a NATO summit last week. And he said that he, you know, he wouldn't buy the NHS if it was handed to him on a silver platter. One of the quirks in the election campaign is that the Labour Party produced documents which had been leaked showing that in the forthcoming trade talks between the United Kingdom and the United States, in which we're going to try and negotiate a free trade agreement, that the NHS would be on the table and that certain parts of the NHS would be more open to being privatised by American corporate giants and that the, currently the good deal we get on US pharmaceuticals would be jeopardised by this trade agreement. And Jeremy Corbyn brandished this leaked document in the first televised debate and appeared to be reading kind of incriminating lines from it. It turns out that there's quite strong evidence that, that the document was actually leaked by the Russians, that they hacked 
into the government's secure computers, leaked this document to the Labour Party. Which is, it's quite, it makes quite a pleasant change that rumours of Russian interference in this election have been on the side of the left of Centre Party rather than the right-wing populist. Before I let you go, I, I want to ask a little bit about some of the quirks of the protagonists in this campaign. First, Boris Johnson. He's, he's a weird guy. Uh, there was one story I was reading where a reporter tried to show Johnson a photo of, I think it was a child who had been victimized by the health system. And Johnson took the reporter's phone and put, and put it in his own pocket. Did, did Johnson ever give the phone back to the reporter? I, th- I think he did give the phone back. Yeah, this happened on Monday. Up until this week, Boris had fought a pretty good general election campaign. He hadn't really made any serious blunders. And unlike Theresa May, who was very overly protected by her handlers during the 2017 general election campaign and didn't interact much with the public and couldn't be trusted to react well in any kind of spontaneous setting with ordinary people, Boris was very good about getting out there and mucking in and and greeting people and even dealing with hecklers in a fairly good-humoured way, in a way which I think was quite endearing and certainly a, a, a good contrast with Theresa May's campaigning style. But the wheels did begin to come off in the last week of the campaign, I think perhaps because he was, you know, running on fumes at that point, completely exhausted. And in the interview you're referring to, yes, he was shown a picture on a mobile phone of a four-year-old boy who was allegedly suffering from pneumonia and was lying on the floor of a hospital because there was no bed to accommodate him. And this was supposed to be illustrative of the savage Tory cuts to the health service. In fact, they haven't cut many of the health service, but whatever. Uh, And Boris, instead of looking at this picture and emoting in a kind of suitably sympathetic way, he was so wrong-footed by it that he grabbed the phone and put it in his pocket, which was a kind of weird, slightly robotic reaction, reminiscent of Theresa May rather than the man of the people. And then a couple of days ago, he was ambushed by another television reporter for one of the breakfast TV shows, the one hosted by Piers Morgan. And and, and they tried to interview him. And Boris uh, on camera said, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute and then disappeared and hid in a kind of industrial fridge <laughs> and rather than be interviewed by Piers Morgan. <laughs> yeah, the New York Times mentioned that. I, if you're listening at home, don't go in fridges. You can suffocate in a fridge. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible place to hide from journalists. Yeah, not a great place to hide. I think uh, this, this wobble in the last few days of the campaign produced a lot of nerviness uh, at Conservative HQ and this feeling that support for Labour was beginning to grow and they were closing the gap between them and the Conservatives and it all might go horribly wrong. No one thought that uh, Corbyn was about to win an overall majority, but people thought that if he was able to deprive Boris of a majority, um, as he'd been able to do with Theresa May, Boris, unlike Theresa, couldn't rely on the support of any of the smaller parties in the House of Commons because he's more or less alienated them all. Uh, and, And Jeremy Corbyn would be able to become prime minister and form a minority government with the support of the SNP, possibly the Liberal Democrats as well. So that was the great fear that there could be, Corbyn could be in number 10 today rather than Boris if he managed to deprive Boris of a majority. But as it turns out, Boris has massively increased the Conservatives' majority. Uh, One of the political rituals in any election now is that there is a sort of meta debate about the media's role and whether the media is biased toward one side or the other. Of course, the people conducting this debate are themselves in the media. But what was your sense of the media's objectivity in this campaign? Did both sides get a fair shake? I think that both sides got a fair shake by the broadcasters, uh, certainly on the BBC, Sky, ITV. Uh, There are some papers which have been pro-Labour, like The Guardian, The Independent, uh, a tabloid called The Daily Mirror, which has a Sunday edition called The Sunday Mirror. So it wasn't completely one-sided, even in the press, but certainly the larger papers, the more popular papers, are right of centre, and they 
heavily campaigned for Boris. I mean, often after Labour is defeated at a general election, the party supporters will blame the media, the Tory-controlled media, the Murdoch-controlled media. But I think the impact of print media is becoming less and less significant during general election campaigns. You know, it's it's an air war, and it's an air war which to a great extent now is fought on social media, on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, and direct mail, narrowly targeted advertising. Well, let's also look at the fact that a lot of people say that the Leave side won the referendum a couple of years ago because newspapers, especially the Daily Mail, uh, published misinformation about the financial cost of Britain's affiliation with the European Union. Surely the newspapers must still have some influence on the way people vote. Uh well, I'm not sure that uh, that was instrumental in determining the result of the 2016 referendum. I mean, that was... Did they also say that the, the, the Queen supported leaving? Well, I remember there was <laughs> nonsense about the Queen supporting the Leave side, no? Yeah, there was there was, there was was um, a story, I think, in one of the papers about uh, the Queen allegedly being pro-Leave. I'm not sure how many people believed it. Uh, it certainly wasn't confirmed by the palace. There was misinformation during the 2016 referendum on both sides. And one of the great, the kind of emblematic, talismatic pieces of disinformation was the figure on the side of Boris's battle bus, which was £350 million. This was the number the UK is supposedly handing over to the EU every week. And Boris was saying, if we leave the EU, we can spend that on the NHS instead, which was, uh, wasn't was an out-and-out lie, but it was a sleight of hand, because even though we do hand over £350 million a week to the EU, we get roughly £175 million back. So if we leave the EU, we're not going to have £350 million a week spare to spend on the NHS or schools or whatever. And that was kind of singled out by all of the people on the losing side in the referendum as typical of the way in which the British public were completely misled during the campaign. But it wasn't as if during the campaign, no one pointed out the difference between the gross and our net contributions to the EU. It was pointed out ad nauseum. All right. This really is the last question. And I'm going to come back to something you said before, which I just can't get it out of my head. Manhole covers. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, presumably his his political career is now over and he'll have more time to pursue personal interests. Manhole covers? Yes. It's uh, in some ways quite endearing. He has this apparently this passionate interest in manhole covers. And often, you know, um, as, as, as he's walking down the street with his kind of closest political advisors, uh, he'll stop, look down, spot a, a particularly interesting and unusual manhole cover. And uh, quite often we'll do a kind of rubbing of it on a piece of paper. So he has a kind of trace of the particular design to put with his voluminous collection of manhole cover tracings. But it's a very endearing thing. I, I, George Orwell, in one of his essays about the British national character, I think he describes uh, the English as pigeon racers and stamp collectors and eccentric hobbyists. In some ways, despite all Corbyn's flaws, he is a very British failure, isn't he? Yes, in many ways he is. And one of Corbyn's stranger policies when it came to the media uh, is that he wanted to prescribe the election of editors by the staff of newspapers and magazines. So instead of being appointed by the proprietor, henceforth, under a Corbyn government, they'd be elected. And then in this way, you know, who would empower the kind of woke millennials employed on low wages in the engine rooms of newspapers and magazines and make it. But that's horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Yeah. But I think if we were given that choice, we would still elect Claire as our editor, our glorious leader. Oh, absolutely. 
when I think about Orwell's descriptions of various different stock British characters, I think about the boiled rabbits of the left, the Bloomsbury vegetarians. When I think of Jeremy Corbyn, he is very much a kind of purse-slipped scold, a pointy head, one of the people who would have been a roundhead rather than a cavalier in England's civil war. One of the people whom Orwell said would rather be caught stealing from the poor box than standing to attention during the singing of the national anthem. And funnily enough, one of the black marks against Corbyn in 2015, when he first became Labour leader, is that during the sing, he refused to sing the national anthem at a memorial service for the pilots who died during the Battle of Britain. Boris, by contrast, is uh, is a kind of Saturnalian, Falstaffian character, very much a cavalier rather than a roundhead. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons, I think, that Corbyn went down so poorly in these traditional working class constituencies in the Midlands and the north of England. You know, he, he just struck them as a slightly weird, finger-wagging scold, someone you couldn't really sit down and enjoy a drink with, probably doesn't even drink. Whereas Boris, for all his shortcomings, is someone you could have a bit of a laugh with, someone you could have a pint with in the pub. He is a kind of, you know, an overgrown schoolboy, a toff out, a sort of pantomime toff out of PG Woodhouse. Yeah, well, fair enough on Boris Johnson, as long as he doesn't take my cell phone. (laughs) Toby Young, thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.